Hello, and welcome to the Grant Street Experience. I'm your host, Grant Irvin. Uh, super excited to be with everyone here today. Uh, we've got a new co-host uh, for us pinching in for Rebecca Kiernan. we got Shelly Danko plus Day. Shelly, how are you this morning? I'm good. Great I'm, I'm really good. The, the plus sign is silent, though. Danko Day. The, the plus sign is silent. Mm-hmm. Duly noted. Duly noted. And we have a great guest with us uh, here this this morning, Lisa Scales from the Greater Pittsburgh Food Bank. Lisa, how are you today? I'm terrific. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Excellent. It's uh, as we were saying, kind of in in show prep, it's been a long time since we've uh, uh, physically been able to kind of see and everything. So it's great to spend some time with you this morning. Yep. Good to see you. How uh, so, you know, maybe I just just point out that this is the day after Lisa Scales Day in Pittsburgh. You know, Shelly, that is a good point. Not only is it Lisa Scales Day, and we're, we're truly honored because not only is it Lisa Scales Day in the city of Pittsburgh, but also you were recently named Pittsburgher of the Year. Is that correct? That is right. I mean, and yesterday was a special day for sure. And Pittsburgh Magazine had a virtual event in my honor last night. And I had a lot of surprise uh appearances by family members and showing some old photos, uh, family (laughs) photos. Um, It really was quite a special day and what an incredible honor to be named Pittsburgher of the Year. I'm I'm just truly uh, heartfelt. uh, Just my, uh, it's just incredible to me. Yes, super congratulations to you, Lisa, and and totally well-deserved and well-earned. So, you know, this is you're the first Pittsburgher of the year to be interviewed on the Grant Street Experience. So uh, we're, we're truly honored for, for that kind of privilege to have you here. Um, maybe to get started for listeners, uh, if you could share a little bit about uh, kind of your journey. Um, who, who is Lisa Scales and um, tell us about your role at the food bank. Well, it's been an interesting journey. If you would have asked me when I was 30 years old, uh, if I would be here today in, in 2021, I, I would not have predicted this. Um, I, uh, after graduating from Seton Hill University, I went to law school at, in Boston at Boston University School of Law. And uh, I thought my future was set as a, as a young lawyer. I moved out to uh, Chicago and worked in the law department for the city of Chicago, prosecuting taxi cab drivers, and uh, bars and restaurants uh, to suspend or revoke liquor licenses for violations. And um, it was an an interesting time. That was in the 1980s. Then I moved back here to southwestern Pennsylvania to work uh, for my father, my grandfather, who were both attorneys and had the the, really the thrill of a lifetime to work with both of them. But it as much as I love the law, it did not fuel my passion. And I wanted something more meaningful in my life. And, and really my path then to the food bank, it, it took still a number of years to get to the food bank, but it really was serendipity, meeting the person who was the fundraiser for the food bank in the early 90s. Um, and, and what she said about the mission stuck with me. And finally in 1996, uh, I joined the food bank after that same person called me up when I thought I knew what path I was on and said, I wanna buy you lunch. And the rest really is history. And it's been a wonderful journey. Um, This is my fifth position at the food bank as president Mm -hmm. and CEO. Um, So it's, it's, 
it, it's the mission. It's our, our collaborative nature. It's the partnerships in our DNA. We have this amazing network of 600 partners in our network in Southwestern Pennsylvania. It's really been a joy. Wow. That's amazing. Maybe, you know, dive, dive, let's dive right in. The operations of the food bank. Um, we, we know it. Uh, it has, you know, obviously kind of a, a regional uh, brand power. We, we think we know what the work is. Um, but maybe explain a little bit about kind of the, the operations and the structure, uh, kind of the, the behind the scenes. Yeah, happy to grant. It's, you know, what food banks are known for is logistics, right? Um, we, we move in a lot of food in our warehouse, out of our warehouse, really a distribution center. So traditionally, when we opened our doors, and we're, cel- we're, we're celebrating our 40th year in existence. So in 1980, when we were incorporated, Uh, We're essentially a warehouse that collects and distributes uh, uh, mainly donated food. Well, really our food is we have donated food, we have government commodities that we receive, and then we do purchase those items that are not normally donated. But really the, the heart of the food bank, the core work is moving food throughout a network. And so again, traditionally food banks only got food out through its network partners. Many are food pantries. Some will provide a meal like a soup kitchen or an after school program, but essentially grocery items because it, it could be anything you would see at a grocery store, um, uh, you know, shampoo, toilet paper, laundry detergent. Those are highly desired and expensive items at the grocery store. So we mm-hmm. love to have those donated. But essentially we move pallets of those uh, types of items through a network. But but we're in such a transformative stage right now. We're so much more than that. We're, we're getting out food in so many different ways. Um, the core still is through our pantry network, 80% during the pandemic, it, it stayed 80% of our food goes out through our pantry network. They order, they go online, they order food from us and either we deliver, or they pick up the food. But we also have partners who, who provide summer meals and, and meals for after school. We have partners with healthcare providers, with uh, colleges and universities. Uh, we have our Thrive Boxes, our nutritious food boxes at over 20 doctor's offices. So when they screen for food insecurity and someone is food insecure, they can give them a box of food. We're also doing the work, though, to reduce the needs. So not only are we meeting people's immediate food needs, but we're also partnering with others to reduce the need. We know people are in line at our food pantries because they don't have enough resources. They're under-resourced and made, making those tough trade-offs. So that's, that's new for us, and it's also very challenging. But again, it's, it's really fulfilling in working with all the partners that we work with. What, what was the, uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit about like the genesis of the Greater Pittsburgh Food Bank. Um, so a 40 plus year history, what was the original impetus? Yeah, so my understanding, because I was not involved then, is uh, there was a, a, a fledgling network called Second Harvest that started one man's vision, John Van Hengel in Arizona, had this vision, saw food waste first, and then knew there was a need. And he had this idea of let's collect it and get it out through a network of, of, of partners, trusted partners in neighborhoods. And so that's the Second Harvest Network started. Locally, there was a group and Joyce Rothermel, our, our a founding board member and longtime CEO was part of that group that saw this opportunity. At, this t- at that time, there were 40 food banks in the network. 
And our and when we joined, our service area um, was was Erie uh, through West Virginia and Eastern Ohio. But we predominantly served people who were homeless or those who had been laid off from when the mills closed. And that was our primary population. So the pantry being open for two hours in the middle of a work day worked for people. Um, and that was how our, our pantry net, network started. Interesting. And, and how has that changed over time? Um, I, I mean, the last time, uh, and Shelly led our tour uh, pre-pandemic, uh, we do kind of a a little kind of outreach uh, and field trips as a sustainability team, just to kind of meet with partners and see operations on the ground. Um, and I remember seeing the facility, uh, it's been a while since I was there and it was just immaculate um, in terms of like you're saying, the symphony of pallets moving and um, all the different activities. How, how has the food bank kind of um, both grown and evolved from those early, early stages? Yeah, in, in a couple ways, and I'll, I'll first talk about in terms of type of product. Um, so the type of product, most of the product in the early days and up until maybe 10 years ago uh, was, was canned goods and boxed meals, right? So we were, we were uh, those items that were donated um, were those shelf stable core grocery items. Um, that has changed dramatically as, as you and Shelly know, um, 75% of the food that's donated to us is perishable food. Um, we have a large amount of, uh, especially fresh produce. Last year, the food bank distributed 12 million pounds of fresh produce. That was 32% of our distribution. And we have a very aggressive goal that 50% of our distribution or 20 million pounds a year will be fresh produce. That's because that's what's in abundance. Those core grocery items, the, the canned goods and the box meals are no longer readily available to food banks. So we had, we had to shift a number of years ago and look for opportunities. Produce is in abundance, right? Farming is not scientific yet. And so we take advantage of all the produce that's available. So the type of product has changed dramatically, which is one of the main reasons we're renovating our facility is to continue to add cold space so we can more easily and safely handle uh, fresh produce. Why, why that imbalance, I guess, or why less of the boxed and canned goods uh, versus the fresh produce? That's a great question. There are changes. It's called, we call those... Uh, uh, manufactured food. So that manufactured food is 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 handled differently now with the just-in-time inventory mm -hmm. and um, supply chain changes that businesses have done to be more uh, cost-effective. So now let's take Kraft, uh, Kraft Heinz. They make Kraft macaroni and cheese, right? We all know that box of Kraft macaroni and cheese. Yep. In the old days, they would make they would make huge batches and there'd be pallets and distribution centers around the country. And if it got too close to the use by date or they decided to change their label, all that product would be donated to food banks. Nowadays, they don't even make it until there's an order for it. That's smart on their end, right? As a business, they don't have the waste. So right. good for them, but that's been bad for food banks. So it's really caused us, not just us locally, but nationally. Um, and I, I, I co-chaired a produce committee for Feeding America to determine how we can as a, nationally get more fresh produce to food banks around the country. And I'm happy to say that we do have one of the, one of the five uh, regional produce cooperatives at the Port of Philadelphia, 
the largest mm -hmm. port on the East Coast mm -hmm. for produce. So we're one of 25 food banks that gets produce from there. Of course, we get produce locally from about 40 farms. Uh, uh, we had last year, uh, they donated a, a million pounds, uh, local and Pennsylvania farms. That's amazing. Shelly, you, you've been involved in, in the, the development of a report recently called uh, Feed Pittsburgh um, and focuses in on those issues of food insecurity. Um, maybe could you share a little bit about kind of that work and some of the findings um, and how that kind of is, is demonstrated here with the work that Lisa's leading? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that Lisa touched on was in the beginning, you were working with the homeless population. And I think the hungry population has changed a lot. Like the, the daytime hours aren't necessarily good because we've got the working poor. We've got the people who are working 40 hour weeks and they can't make ends meet. And that's, that's what's changed in our society and why this need is even greater now. And with the pandemic, we saw that um, just come down real hard. But um, the Feed Pittsburgh report looked at the different, the different reasons for food insecurity. It's not just that people don't have a grocery store. Like I think a lot of times people think there's one quick fix, but it's not just that they don't have access to a grocery store, but they don't have access to the money necessarily to buy the groceries um, or um, they don't have access to transportation to get there. Um, but then there's also like if they did get fresh food, which I think we've all determined, like some of the some of the early food bank products were food. <laughs> um, so we're, we're looking more at like real food and we're realizing how the food system and these these choices mm -hmm. um, that are cheap and these manufactured foods are low. They're high in calories, low in nutrients. And so we're trying to get back to the, the better quality food, and the, the fresh vegetables and stuff. And so. If you give people fresh vegetables, do they know what to do with it? Do they have a pan to cook it in? Do they have a stove? Do they have a refrigerator to extend the life of these fresh products? Um, so those are things that we don't often think about when we think about food insecurity, but they're totally valid. And then we've got the food system. The food system is uh, precarious. And we all saw that with this pandemic. It um, really hit us hard. And so the things that, that we as food system experts have seen and, and knew was coming, the rest of the world was like, oh my God, <laughs> in, in like May. And we were just like, yeah, we told you this was happening. So, um, but the Feed Pittsburgh report, it outlines all of those reasons for food insecurity. And then um, what we did, and you could see a little bit of it on my map, this map behind me, um, this is the, the healthy food priority areas are some of the areas where we have we mapped out a whole bunch of things and and Lisa your team provided us with some really great data thank you for that so we mapped out the the food insecurity poverty rates um, access of uh, uh, rates of access to transportation which is a census um, uh, census data you can find um, we mapped the grocery stores and and people within like the communities within a half mile radius of the grocery store and we took geography into consideration because uphill both ways does not constitute really nearby <laughs> if you're going to a grocery store. Um, and we know that that's reality in Pittsburgh. You can literally have to go up and down to get somewhere and then up and down again to get home. Um, so we, we mapped out all these these areas and and some other some other data and came to um, we, we identified areas that we could, we're calling healthy food priority areas. That's a city term. Um, to to for us to 
use it as a guide and where to put our, our priorities for healthy food. But they're areas that are, it's not a surprise to anybody. These are food apartheid areas. These are areas that have been lacking in amenities and services for a long time in the city. So you, you've got your hill, the Hill District, uh, various uh, communities, the East End, Homewoods, and Larmer and Lincoln Lemington. Um, you've got a little bit in Glen, Glen Hazel and Hazelwood um, and some in the North side, the Charles Street Valley. And that's not to say that food insecurity isn't everywhere, everywhere right? high, um, but in those areas, it's most acute. And like I said, the people with lack, to, lack of uh, access to a car is a big deal too. So that's why, I mean, I know some of the East or the West End areas um, do have high food insecurity, but they have higher uh, vehicle access than some of the other areas. So anyway, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's interesting because like both of you guys are talking about this, um, a logistics challenge, right? Whether it's, it's the access from the neighborhood, um, but also there's been supply chain disruptions like uh, through the pandemic. And what, what has that looked like? You mentioned the Port of Philadelphia, Lisa. I mean, how has that, uh, those supply chain disruptions impacted some of the challenges here locally? Yeah, sure. I mean, we really saw those, uh, uh, really what the pandemic laid bare was the, the fragility of, this, of the food supply chain and what happens uh, when uh, people uh, rush to the grocery store and, mm -hmm. and uh, they, they start to take large quantities. And you have to remember food banks, we're at the tail end of the grocery store, right? You know, of the food chain. So when you think about the food chain and food banks getting leftover food, right? Essentially from the donations, we really are at the tail end of that supply chain. So our food supply got perilously low in, in mid to late April. Um, I do want to commend Giant Eagle. Uh, we were able to partner with them and get some of those core grocery items. Some other vendors came through. Um, but the food supply and the, and the type of food, and I just want to follow up on a couple of things Shelly said is, is yes, traditionally food banks, you said food, Shelly, uh, we, we had in the old days, a lot of snack food, uh, um, uh, items that weren't necessarily healthy food banks really weren't known for healthy food. We would just take whatever was donated. Um, but again, our focus has always been on getting the most nutritious food for folks. We are, we feel like we're a public health organization. We had a nutritionist, a registered dietitian on our staff starting in 1991. Wow. We have been a leader in the Feeding American Network in focusing on nutritious food. But I will also say that access to food, as Shelley rightly said, access alone does not ensure that people are going to be food secure. And so there are a lot, there's education. We started to conduct uh, uh, cooking demos and we had a tractor trailer load of frozen salmon steaks. Well, if people have never seen a frozen salmon steak or knew what to, how to prepare it, it, it may leave our warehouse, but it may not end up in anyone's stomach, right? So there's education that has to happen, but you're right. You know, we've been working, we've been looking at, you know, is there a role we can play in providing some of those basic kitchen utensils? Mm -hmm. And we know people don't have working stoves. And, and so there are other issues mm -hmm. that are impairing people's ability to eat nutritious food. And finally, the, what's really uh, Earlier, we talked about the changes in the food banking. I talked about produce and the, and the type of product. The, the, the piece that I'm most excited about is what we've been saying for five years. In terms of getting food to people, we need to get it to them where they are when they need it. So we have been 
laser focused in the last five years on getting food closer to people. And mm -hmm. we're doing that in a number of ways, doorstep delivery or home delivery, our pantries, expanded hours, different hours. We have a couple exciting, I can't talk about it yet, but you will <laughs> see very shortly uh, another new way that we will be getting food closer to people and making it more convenient for them. Um, and there are a couple others in the works as well, hopefully later this year that, that we'll uh, launch. So that's been our focus uh, here is to get food closer to where people are when they need it. Awesome. I'm really I was excited. You guys have done a really good job of, of filling in all of those different different needs throughout the of, of food insecurity. And I'm I've always been really impressed with the food bank. I was wondering if, if, if both of you could could share some experiences. Um, you know, maybe Lisa first and then Shelly about uh, some of these distribution efforts that have gone on during the pandemic. And and Lisa, like one of the things I think that has been noted is the, the uh, I'm going to call it an iconic image of the long lines um, for people to, you know, to get to the, the Duquesne location where your you know, your hub location there. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience and, and days like that? Um, just from your own personal experience. And then Shelly, I know that you've been involved in a, a couple of other kind of local distribution efforts, and I think it'd be great to share those as well. But Lisa first. I tell you, Grant, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary. March 16th stands out, and, and actually March 18th in particular stands out, and I'll, I'll share that. Um, those were long, hard, dark days, frankly, hard days. Um, overnight, the need exploded, right? We, instead of having 15 people, we typically would have 15 people show up at our warehouse for food, knock on the door, hey, I'm in need of food. Uh, we started to have almost 100 people starting March 16th. We'd get a couple food uh, phone calls from people in need of food. We started to get hundreds of phone calls every day that, that week of March 16th. Uh, we uh, have a website where we have a get help button and you can locate a pantry we started to get thousands of views on that website. Wow. Uh, so we had our first drive up distribution on Wednesday, March 18th in the late afternoon, early evening. And I remember it well, uh, it was dark, it was raining, pouring down rain. We had this set up, we had, honestly, I'm gonna say, we didn't know what we were doing. It was our first time. We knew we had to do, do new things, different new things to, to meet the need. We could not continue to safely distribute food through our produce to people program, which mm -hmm. uh, we, we have in 18 communities, but uh, people park and they gather and we could not uh, continue that distribution safely. So we started uh, mm -hmm. right away with let, let's, let's have people drive up. We'll, they'll pop the trunk. We'll put the food, food boxes in there. Well, we backed up traffic to McKeesport from Duquesne to McKeesport that night. And we, had to turn away my estimate about 200 people and there's nothing worse for a food banker than having to turn people down for food we did let them know that we were having a distribution um you know later that week or they could come the next day to the food bank and we would we make make more boxes in the morning and have that for them but um that that was really really a challenge so we worked with the local uh, city duquesne police on traffic flow and that's where you saw that line we we had to get the traffic off of route 837 and yeah. into the rdc park where we are um but it was it was a real challenge because we could not safely distribute food in the same way nor could our pantries 
So again, we, we like choice pantries. People come in and they kind of shop, so to speak, at the pantry. They don't pay any money, but they select their items. Mm-hmm. Um, they, had to, they had to change how they were operating in terms of having uh, reserved hours or, or having uh, emergency food boxes. Uh, we could not safely have volunteers come to our facility. People were not social distancing. Volunteering at a food bank is very social. Right. This was in the early days and people weren't used to social distancing. So eventually- It's a hands-on that, volunteer experience, right? Like, it, yeah. It is. And so, um, you know, we had to go to the governor and ask the governor to activate the National Guard in order for us to pack emergency food boxes to, to get them out to the community. It was a challenging time, but our, our staff was resilient. They were amazing. Um, and really none of this is possible without the support of the community, including really can't say enough about our partnership with the government, uh, local, state, and uh, federal government really stepped up in a big way. Totally. What was, I, I mean, we know the time, we remember it well, but was there a particular trigger, I guess, that you know, cause the, the flow that like in that three day period? It was just, we were bombarded, you know, phone calls, people coming to the food bank that we saw the activity on the website. It really came together. But what helped is we actually were ready. We had been working mm-hmm. uh, to prepare for this in early March because we saw this coming. I called my, con- my colleague at the Food Lifeline, the food bank in Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. They had the first outbreak. I called right. her the first week of March to be ready for when the pandemic would spread here and asked her what she was doing. So, and, and as food bankers, we have, uh, res- we, we, we have experience responding to disasters. I was in New York City after 9-11. I was in Louisiana after Katrina. And I tell you, this middle of March of, of, of 2020 felt a lot like there I was in Baton Rouge. <laughs> and New Orleans uh, after Katrina. So we had some experience, fortunately, and that really helped us be able to very quickly um, triage what was happening because this was a disaster, but unlike any other disaster that we'd responded to. That's amazing to make that type of parallel too. Shelly, you've experienced this as well with uh, some of the distribution efforts that you've been doing. in terms of needing refrigeration space and kind of that that direct connection to the community, maybe if you could share about that a little. Yeah, there's um, so I think what happened mostly with with this is uh, we realized how how short the distance is from food secure to food insecure, uh-huh. tiny, um, and it happened like that. Um, and a lot of the volunteers, Lisa, you mentioned um, a lot of your volunteers are probably over sixty five. That tends to be the the case at a lot of food food pantries. So that was probably something that took a hit as well. Another consideration, I guess. Um, but my my job normally isn't around food emergency food anything. Um, so I didn't wasn't really involved in much of that except to try to get the farmers markets opened. Um, as far as like my my work with directly with food. Um, but then in October, there was this opportunity because the CARES Act funding, I guess it was managed in different ways. Um, but this, the end of October, um, Chef Claudie Pierre got offered 4,000 boxes of food, four truckloads of food. And I thought, right, we could do this. We can, you know, figure this out. And, and, you know, we had like four days, a truck a day, and, and we thought we had, we had three days to plan it. And there were three of us working on this, um, 
and it it was kind of a mess um but we learned a lot from that um and now there is a doc our pastor jay um is from the um another level ministries and he has been offered one truck a week <laughs> from now through april which seems so much more manageable and we have every week we can improve on that process. So I've been helping um, Deborah with that and organizing that. And it's, I mean, 1300 is a lot less than 4,000. Um, and, and it's, uh, we have engaged a network of people who work on the ground in their communities. I'm calling it the food access network. Um, we have about 130 members. So it's, it's, I'm sure there's probably some of the same people that, that are working with us that work with you. Um, just another another source for pantries and food banks to be able to access food. Um, but they'll come and pick stuff up tomorrow morning and take them to their communities and then distribute them from there. So we're doing this really, um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing. We're learning a lot, but there's um, just so many moving parts. Yeah, and it's really, this has really been a team effort grant in terms of the, you can see the whole community coming together. Um, you know, food banks are used to handling tractor trailer loads of food, pallets of food, and that's what we do. But it really, I can't imagine what you do as a, a church in a community when right. you're getting, you know, that much food and handling it safely, especially when it's fresh food. Um, it's so paramount because we serve such a vulnerable population. Half the people we serve are kids and seniors. So uh, food safety is a, is a high priority for us. One, you used uh, one of my favorite words a little earlier, the issue of resilience. Um, and, and one of the things uh, I'm interested in learning is um, what are some of the things that you've learned in terms of this, both the system, but how have you, uh, through your leadership, uh, kind of adapted to those challenges throughout the pandemic? Yes, I mean, we've, we've learned so much um, and, and food banks traditionally are larger organizations, you know, such as ours is, and um, we're, we're not as quick or as uh, uh, nimble as, as, as smaller community-based organizations just because we're larger and it takes us a little longer. But one of the lessons we learned and what, what will really, uh, you know, this has transformed the food bank. We're not the same organization coming out of the pandemic as we mm. were pre-pandemic. And that's true for a lot of yeah. companies and, and organizations. But we're a much more nimble organization now. We, we had to adapt very quickly to this new way of delivering food. We had to, we had to uh, uh, expand the sources of food, the, the partners. Uh, one, of, one of the things we learned was our pantry network uh, as our core and our traditional pantries really are fabulous at what they do, but that we needed to expand uh, who our partners are, again, to get food closer to where people are when they need it. Mm -hmm. So because of the pandemic, we uh, added 132 new community partners to wow. our network. They're not food pantries. They're getting the food boxes from us. And, and, and they're going to stay with our network. They're not, you know, we're not going to uh, 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 end our relationship with them once the pandemic passes. So uh, these are important partners that are providing other critical services. So again, people are going to them maybe for immigration services or legal services or job training. And we can have our food boxes there like we have with, the, with at doctor's offices. So that's been a, a real learning, but it was really um, 
bringing people together and rallying people. I, I think as a leader, you know, what, what's, what struck me was how critical it is to really step up and be the leader that the organization needed, the leader that the community needed. And, yeah. and there, was, there was no saying no, right? We had to adapt and adapt very quickly. And, and some staff pushed back. Some staff, you know, not everybody rises to that level of, of, uh, of the challenge uh, just because of, 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 of how, they, how they work, their type of work. And so there were staff members who really surprised me and how adaptive they were and, and, and really uh, able to very quickly turn and, and offer suggestions on new ways to distribute food. And, and so it was really about identifying those key staff because we had to move people around too. They, they, mm -hmm. Not everybody during the spring continued with their with their regular job we had to we had to very quickly move people to where we needed it we established a call center because we were getting hundreds of phone calls so we diverted you know there were three staff who were working from home and we said well now you're all of a sudden you're you're on the call center you're handling these phone right. calls so people needed to take on new positions and and be agile in their own response that's right that's right you mentioned earlier too at uh, another unique partnership uh, that I know that you're a, a big part of is the Feed America Network. Um, how how much does that uh, you know here in the city we're a part of a, a number of networks. Um, can you share what that network means for you um, as a, a food bank? You know, in a, in a location, but like, what are some of the things that the value of that national network brings here to Pittsburgh? Oh, that's a great question. And thank you, because I, you know, I so value being a member of the Feeding America Network of Food Banks. We're one of 200 food banks. Each of us have a designated service area. Ours happens to be 11 counties in southwestern Pennsylvania. And it's such a, it's a learning network. It's a sharing. Uh, they've, they've stepped up great leadership. Um, they have shared, they uh, had a large grant from Jeff Bezos that they shared out with the network. They've shared other funding opportunities since the spring with the network. But really it's the leadership. Claire Babineau Fontenot is the CEO. And uh, we all keep the people we serve at the heart of the work we do every day. And Claire is no exception. Uh, she reached out, uh, checked in with me. How are you doing, Lisa? I saw the long lines of cars. Um, but they provide, they provide, not only do they provide food, they have the relationship with the national food manufacturers and the mm. international food manufacturers, but they provide funding, but they also provide other type of support. They have an innovation team on uh, uh, as part of Feeding America, and they're testing out some new ideas. We're in a pilot for Order Ahead, um, where folks can, uh, individuals can order uh, food and reserve food and then a, a designated pickup time. So they're, they're always testing new ways to get food to people. Um, they have learning conferences. There's just so much value in, in being a member of, of Feeding America. That's terrific. Maybe for both of you, just as we're, we're looking to uh, get closer on time, um, you know, with these lessons that you, you've both learned in terms of the challenges that the food systems ha that have faced through the pandemic, um, what are some things that we can apply going forward that strengthen the resilience of that food system? Um, you know, whether it's local distribution or kind of the national networks, like what are the one or two things that the, the two of you would kind of advocate for if, if you had like your, 
your magic wand and, you know, and said like, this shall be so like, what, what would you guys pick? And that's I'll, the softball question. So okay. I'll, I'll start, I'll, I'll say, you know, when, when in the spring, when we had the disrupt, uh, disruptions in the food supply chain, I would say processing, you know, we had food items offered to us that we couldn't handle, you know, because um, just the sheer size of the items that were really more for food service that the food service industry wasn't taking. So we, we could have taken it if we could have processed it. Like, mm. uh, um, uh, so if, if, if there was a more regional food processing, we could take some of those larger items and, and get it so it's more retail pack. Um, that would be huge. That's interesting. Shelly, how about you? Yeah, no, that's, that is huge. I, I agree with Lisa. That's definitely, I mean, I, I come from the perspective of looking at improving our overall food system. So looking at production and then processing and then the, the retail aspects. So I'm a big fan of urban agriculture. I'm a big fan of farmers markets and of communities. You know, Homewood did an amazing job this summer of, you know, they grew a lot of food in the community and then they sold it at their farmer's market right there. So stuff moved like three blocks and then moved and got sold and moved another three blocks to where it was being consumed, which I just love that so much. Um, so that's the kind of thing I want to see happen more, but the, the processing with the larger quantities of food and also food that we can't grow here in the city, like any sort of meat that might um, be needed. Um, although everybody's trying to reduce their meat consumption, but the local meat producers need some love and they do regenerative uh, growing and, and sustainable practices. So we need to encourage that and, and support that. So yeah, but yeah, processing definitely. So and just more local. Yeah, so basically kind of shortening those supply chains, right? Is that is that like one of the major thrusts there? Yeah, um, definitely. So, so we're coming up against time and I, I wanted to, uh, I'm, I'm going to typically in this section, Lisa, we ask folks what they're listening, reading and watching. Um, so I, I want to put that question out to both of you, but before we go there, I want to know for the two of you, uh, what are you uh, eating or cooking or growing also? That's, that's, a, that's another kind of way to focus this in for the two of you. So listening, watching or reading or cooking, growing, uh, or, 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 you know, what's, what's in your food pantry at home? Those are some of the things that are interesting. Who wants to go first? Shelly, you want to go first? Go ahead, Lisa. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Let's see. Okay. Listening, you know, I'm old school. I, I listen to a lot of Van Morrison. So, uh, that's always at the top of my playlist. Um, reading, I, I am just about to start cast, uh, the book cast, uh, looking forward to reading that. Um, watching, I just finished all seven seasons of West Wing, which I had Whoa. seen when it was originally nice. on. That took me a, a lot. I don't have a lot of time, so that took me many months. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to Ozark coming back because uh, uh, some family members uh, turned me on to Ozark last summer. So uh, I hope that comes back on soon. Uh, cooking wise, um, a lot of kind of just staple items because again I don't have a lot of time. Uh, uh, pasta, some veggies, uh, quick and easy. But you know, I really love supporting the restaurants. I'm a big the folks over at Butter Joint know me well, especially on Burger Night. Uh, I put a plug in for for Butter Joint. But there's so many of the restaurants. Uh, Bill Fuller, all the big burritos, uh, trying to support them as well. 
Bill, Bill Fuller lives down the street from me, so he'll he'll be gr great to hear that. That's awesome, Shelly. How about you? What what's uh, kind of in your your entertainment queue, and then uh, also what's what are you cooking or eating these days? I can show you this is this is a bean sprout that I sprouted. It's the only one that sprouted in this whole container of bean seeds that I planted. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to grow my own, but it's it's not happening in my house. It's real dry. Um, but what I've been, uh, okay. So what I've been listening to, uh, I have been listening to audiobooks nice, and nice. a friend of mine introduced me to the three body problem. It's science fiction. It's Chinese science fiction, uh, translated into English. It's actually quite beautiful and it's very physics heavy. So the concepts are really interesting and it's, you know, I don't claim to understand it all, but it is fascinating. It's like watching PBS, you know, those science shows about like string theory and stuff. And I just can't really get my head around it, but it's really interesting to look at. What have I been uh, eating? Um, my husband has been cooking a lot. This pandemic has been really great for my husband experimenting with things. Um, Brett has been making this pumpkin curry. It's vegetarian. It's got chickpeas and oh. it's just amazing. And so uh, but he also made the other day some macaroni and cheese from scratch, which is amazing. Um, so I've been really enjoying that. Um, it gives him something to do and gives me something to eat. That's, he's keeping you nourished. That, that, is, that is good. <laughs> well, that's absolutely terrific. Um, it's been great spending time with you, um, Lisa, truly a Pittsburgh hero. And we appreciate all, all the work that you do um uh and your team at the greater pittsburgh food bank um it's really been a, a great to kind of you know watch and participate with the work that you guys do and makes us uh proud to call you a pittsburgher and so thank you uh both on lisa scales day and for being a pittsburgher of the year um and spending some time for us but uh it's great to be a partner for the work that you guys do and uh, great stuff we love partnering with you all too thank you so much <laughs> So thank you, Shelly. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening in. Uh, this has been an, another great episode of the Grant Street Experience. Uh, and we'll catch you next time. Hope everyone has a great day wherever you are. Thanks much, and we'll talk to you soon.